0: Hey, Conjurers! I'm Steph.
1: And I'm Sham.
0: We, like so many others, are outraged by the recent Supreme Court leaked draft decision regarding Roe v. Wade. This is not a debate about pro-choice versus pro-life. It's an attack on women, plain and simple. No one should have the right to make your medical decisions without your consent. This attack on our bodies and our rights has been raging for more than a century. Today we're gonna highlight four of the many instances of violence and murder in the name of the so-called pro-life movement. Before 1840, abortion was a widespread stigma-free experience for American women. Back then, Women most often used herbal remedies learned from other women, healers, or physicians to cure their obstructed menses, before they could even feel the baby kicking and moving in the womb. After the baby started to move and kick, it was illegal to abort the pregnancy, but that law was rarely ever enforced because only the mother could confirm if the baby had moved yet or not. The reason a woman wanted to abort a pregnancy was never in question at that point in history it didn't matter why the abortion was needed only that it was the practice of legal but quiet abortions fell apart in the mid-19th century the first right to life movement was not led by grassroots activists like you might think but rather by doctors concerned with their professional status physicians had been largely unregulated without the institutional or cultural authority to corner the market on healing In the early 19th century, a variety of other healers competed with doctors for business, especially regarding women's reproductive health care. Physicians launched a lobbying campaign in order to hurt community herbal healers business. They insisted on governmental licensing and regulation to weed out the competition. Since women's reproductive health was one of the big areas doctors couldn't pry customers away from the community healers and midwives, Physicians used anti-abortion laws and pushed through state legislature to increase their own stature and undermine their opponents. The movement gained support from men all over the country because it tapped into concerns over women's increasing education, autonomy, and the extension of rights women had been seeking and gaining. This effort was largely successful. By 1900, every state had a law forbidding abortion at any stage, whether through the use of drugs or procedures. Almost all the laws passed during this time included an exception where licensed physicians could provide abortions at their own discretion as long as the abortion preserved the life of the mother. While this loophole allowed many women to obtain the abortions they needed, It also made doctors the ultimate judge of the morality and legality of each abortion. In the 1960s, some Americans began to demand change from their states. In the late 1960s, a feminist movement began to argue that women could not be full citizens unless they could control their own reproduction. These activists helped push state legislator to reform the abortion laws. Colorado was the first to amend its law in 1967, followed quickly by others, most famously California in 1967 and New York in 1970.
1: Thank God for the ones who fought for change. I can't imagine being a doctor at that time though, and I'm sure it was a decision that could have endangered them as well as the mother.
0: I can't imagine the fear abortion doctors must still feel today. At least back then, it was probably easier to have like a low key business but the internet makes everyone easy to find now.
1: Oh yeah, you can track anybody down now. So if you listen to the news or are on social media right now, one thing that we keep hearing about is the Roe v. Wade. So can you explain that one a bit for our overseas conjurers? Absolutely. The
0: 1973 Roe v. Wade decision legalized abortion in all 50 states, changing everything and nothing. In the 1970s, the anti-abortion movement remained heavily Catholic, but they continued to pitch their issues as a rights issue rather than a religious one, not wanting the separation of church and state argument against them. In other essential ways, the decisions aggravated the anti-abortion movement. Before Roe, the anti-abortion movement was very small, geographically spread out, and focused on individual state legislators. After 1973, activists and state legislators alike worried that the Supreme Court decision prescribed a one-size-fits-all abortion law that could only be addressed at the national level. Anti-abortion activists promoted the Hyde Amendment, which successfully prohibited federal funding of abortion through Medicaid. They unsuccessfully pushed for a constitutional amendment banning abortion altogether, though. After 1973, the direction of pro-life activism changed, even as its demographics and core political arguments remained the same. As anti-abortion activists moved the fetus into the political spotlight, they tried to keep the pregnant woman behind the curtain. They attempted to link their campaign to civil rights and human rights work, which led to increasingly heated rhetoric. They argued that, like slavery, abortion made some groups less than human and degraded life. While not actually working on civil rights or human rights issues, pro-life activists used those causes to make the fetus a sympathetic victim and pro-life activists into a modern-day abolitionist. But they avoided discussing what would happen to American women if abortion became illegal. They tried to silence those who voiced the old argument that pregnancy punished women for unwed sexuality. Instead, they claimed that abortion providers and the feminists who condoned legal abortion were truly to blame. In the 1980s, evangelical Christians joined the movement in large numbers, rejuvenating and radicalizing the movement. They formed more radical groups that rejected the political angle of the movement. The most famous of these new radical groups was Operation Rescue, which sought to end abortion by, quote, any means necessary. Operation Rescue pioneered the pro-life rescue, in which thousands created human blockades in front of clinics. In the 1980s and 1990s, Operation Rescue performed such demonstrations in cities across the nation, tying up the city's police departments, filling local jails, and making it increasingly difficult to get an abortion. Their national media spectacle sought to attract reporters and stun the American public. Extremists in the movement went even further. Between the early 1980s and the 2000s, there were 153 assaults, 383 death threats, three kidnappings, 18 attempted murders, and nine murders related to abortion providers.
1: Okay, so let's not pretend like most of these individuals have ever given a damn about slavery, first off. (laughs) It's insane to me, though, how much others refuse to mind their own business. Like, how miserable are you that you choose to wake up every morning and ruin a woman's life over a decision about her body?
0: Right? It doesn't even affect them at all. So what if your religion says it's a sin? Don't do it yourself then, but leave everyone else alone. For people who say they're about saving life,
1: they sure are eager to hurt or even kill living people just trying to live their lives. At this point, everyone associated with these clinics is in immediate danger. They're walking straight into the fire.
0: Oh, you know it. The first known killing of an abortion provider in the United States, according to the National Abortion Federation, took place on March 10, 1993. Dr. David Gunn was shot and killed by an anti-abortion extremist during a protest outside his clinic in Pensacola, Florida. David was shot three times in the back after he got out of his car and walked towards the unmarked rear entrance of the Pensacola Women's Medical Services Clinic, which he had just opened that year. The 47-year-old OBGYN, who performed abortions at several clinics in Florida and other southeastern states, died about two hours later while in surgery. Until Dr. Gunn opened the new clinic earlier that year, The Ladies' Center was the only clinic performing abortions in the Pensacola area. Moments after demonstrators out front heard a series of shots, 31-year-old Michael Griffin came out from the rear of the building, approached a police officer, and said, I've just shot Dr. Gunn. Michael was immediately arrested and charged with murder. The Pensacola police said they found Dr. Gunn lying on the ground behind the clinic with three gunshot wounds in his back. A thirty-eight caliber revolver was also recovered from the
1: area. Well, Michael, I hope that was worth the rest of your life, you idiot.
0: (laughs) Look, he was an OBGYN. Most likely, he brought more babies into this world and did more good for the communities he served than any of those protesters put together. Shot in the back just going to work. Can you imagine? I
1: couldn't even imagine. How did no one else see this coming?
0: Well, John Burt, a retired U.S. Marine and former member of the KKK, knew Michael and his family in his role as self-proclaimed minister. John Burt, who organized the protests in the first place, said that he had not seen Michael at the demonstration until after the shooting, but he said Michael had told him on Sunday at a prayer service that he intended to take part in the demonstration and at the same meeting offered a prayer for the salvation of Dr. Gunn. John Burt, who had also been arrested for his own anti-abortion activities, said the protesters, about 30 people from local Protestant and Catholic churches, had not intended any violence when they assembled around 9am. John Burt was arrested himself following a 1986 incident in which he and other protesters made their way into the Ladies' Center where they knocked down two employees, threw office equipment around, and upended drawers stealing medical records.
1: I mean, you're a member of the KKK, so by default, you're a violent individual in every way possible. And that goes for current KKK members as well, because sadly, they're still allowed to exist.
0: Trash human beings. Also, it sounds like this John guy was the leader of a cult encouraging people to commit
1: violence against abortion clinics. I'm sure he wasn't the last saint to be harmed by these truly evil individuals.
0: The murder of Dr. Gunn was not the first time that Pensacola had been the site of anti-abortion violence, though, and it would not be the last. On Christmas Day in 1984, two doctor's offices and a clinic were bombed by opponents of abortion who were later arrested, convicted, and jailed. Abortion rights groups denounced the killing of Dr. Gunn as another example of the increasing violence against abortion clinics nationwide, and said it stood as a symbol of the increasing harassment of doctors who do abortions, a phenomenon that made it difficult for clinics to find doctors willing to perform the procedure. Dr. Pamela Marilotto, the president of the Planned Parenthood Federation of America, said, Quote, Planned Parenthood is outraged and gravely concerned about the escalation of violence that has gripped reproductive health clinics across the country. The murder of a physician outside a Florida clinic is an obscene and cowardly act, end quote. Rescue America, the Houston-based anti-abortion group with which John Burt is affiliated, said, and I quote, while Gunn's death is unfortunate, it's also true that quite a number of babies' lives will be saved, end quote. Some anti-abortion groups say harassment of physicians is now one of their most effective tactics. Randall Terry, the founder of Operation Rescue, said, quote, we found the weak link is the doctors. We're going to expose them and we're going to
1: humiliate them, end quote. Lock him up, too, because you're not saving lives. You're setting them up for a life of trauma. The doctors are just doing their jobs,
0: which is to help people and save lives. These nutcases really work hard at ignoring the fact that the potential life that they're wanting to save is being created by an
1: already living person, and she should have the final say in what happens inside her body. Exactly. And at the end of the day, these doctors are human, and they all have a story that needs to be told as well. So I'm curious. Tell me more about Dr. Gunn.
0: Dr. Gunn was a graduate of Vanderbilt University and the University of Kentucky Medical School. He was divorced and had two children, a 22-year-old son and a 17-year-old daughter. Those who knew him say Dr. Gunn, who walked with a limp because of a childhood bout of polio, spent his life on the road trying to help anyone he could. Harassments and threats were a part of the job. He received phone calls from people who had threatened him often. According to Susan Hill, the director of National Women's Health Organization in Raleigh, North Carolina, Dr. Gunn had told her 10 days before the attack that he would choose different paths when he was driving between clinics to throw them off. He'd spent the Sunday night prior to the murder with his son, David Jr., in Birmingham, Alabama, discussing the hate mail he had been receiving. David Jr. expressed how afraid he was for his dad's safety, but Dr. Gunn didn't seem scared and reassured his son not to worry that he could take care of himself. A jury deliberated for three hours before finding Michael Griffin guilty on March 4, 1994. He was sentenced to life in prison, which he is serving at Okaloosa Correctional Institution in Crestview, Florida. Michael requested parole in 2017, but in November, 2017, the Florida Commission on Offender Review denied the request ruling that he must remain in prison until at least 2043.
1: Good, because the last place we need him is out here leading these pro-life lunatics now. No kidding. At least tell me his death and those before him eventually opened a few eyes.
0: The opposite, unfortunately. Dr. Gunn's death prompted Paul Jennings Hill to write the defensive action statement signed by 30 anti-abortion leaders, which stated their belief that the killing of doctors who performed abortions is justified homicide. They submitted this document to the court at Michael Griffin's trial. In part, it stated, We assert that if Michael Griffin did in fact kill David Gunn, his use of lethal force was justifiable provided it carried out the purpose of defending the lives of unborn children. Therefore, he ought to be acquitted of the charges against him. Many pointed out the hypocrisy of the pro-life activists who believed it was justifiable to take a life in an effort to save a potential life that may not even be viable. About five months after Michael Griffin was convicted, Paul Hill took it upon himself to continue their demented work. On July 29, 1994, Paul approached the Ladies' Center, an abortion clinic in Pensacola, Florida, around 7.27 a.m., when he spotted clinic doctor 69-year-old John Britton and his bodyguard James Barrett and James's wife outside the clinic. He fired on all three people at close range. Both Dr. Britton and James Barrett died immediately. James's wife June was also wounded in the attack. After shooting his intended targets, Paul laid his shotgun on the ground and waited to be arrested. James, a 74-year-old retired Air Force lieutenant colonel, and his wife, 68-year-old June, who was a retired nurse, had both volunteered to be escorts for doctors, nurses, and patients at the clinic in response to the wave of anti-abortion demonstrations and violent protests. The Barretts had picked up Dr. Britton at the local airport and taken him to the clinic for his regular weekly appointments there. All three of them were sitting in the Barrett's pickup truck in the parking lot when the gunman approached and began firing with a 12-gauge shotgun. Dr. Britton was wearing a bulletproof vest to protect himself, but it didn't do any good because he and James were both shot in the head. Unlike the doctor and her husband, June survived
1: her wounds, being hit only in the arm. That's so insane to me. Can you imagine volunteering to be an all-around good human being only to be brutally attacked?
0: Right? They were just trying to protect vulnerable people from being harassed. It's horrible what that killer did to them.
1: Let these doctors do what they believe is medically necessary, even if you think the women carrying the ball of cells at that point is making a poor decision.
0: Absolutely. And Dr. Britton was one of the few physicians who had been willing to perform abortions in Pensacola since the murder of David Gunn. In fact, Dr. Britton was a family practitioner who began performing abortions in the Pensacola Ladies' Center soon after David Gunn was slain the previous year. In a profile done in GQ magazine, he was a man who had turned to abortions in part because he had bad investment had left him with no money to support himself, his wife, and his five children. He was quoted as saying, I did them because I thought they should have been done. I wouldn't have done them otherwise, but I will say I had no money to feed my family. Paul Hill was a minister and an anti-abortion extremist who had a history of drug abuse in his younger years before finding religion at military school when he was 17 years old. Paul graduated from Reformed Theology Seminary, where he studied under Greg Bassanin, a founder of the right-wing Christian Reconstructionist movement. Following his ordination in 1984, he became a minister affiliated with both the Presbyterian Church and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He was excommunicated in 1993 though, following a number of nationally televised appearances in which he claimed to be the new spokesperson for defensive action, a campaign to kill abortion providers, and he claimed a connection to the army of God terrorist organization. Following his arrest, Paul was brought to trial in the circuit court of Florida, charged with two counts of first-degree premeditated murder, one count of attempted first-degree murder, and one count of shooting into an occupied vehicle. Representing himself, he pleaded not guilty on all counts. He attempted to use the defense action as he had previously proposed for Michael Griffin, which justified his action as in the defense of helpless lives. His motion was denied. On December 6, 1994, Paul was found guilty of the charges and was sentenced to death. He even petitioned the Supreme Court to hear his appeal, but his petition was denied. Paul spent almost a decade in prison awaiting his execution. In a statement made before his execution, his views on the murders remained unchanged. He said that he felt no remorse for his actions and that he expected a great reward in heaven. Paul left behind a manuscript manifesto, which his backers promised they would publish after his death. The execution warrant was not signed until July 2003, at which time it was signed by Governor Jeb Bush. Paul Hill died by lethal injection in Florida State Prison on September 3rd, 2003 at the age of 49.
1: Well... Bye, Paul. The world's a better place without you. (laughs) Hopefully those who have your same mindset join you in your salvation. Damn, Sham. That's brutal. And I said what I said. Also, for our (laughs) listeners in Florida, why is there always something insane going on down there? Anti-abortion violence
0: isn't just a Florida problem. Sham will now tell us even more stories about terrorists like this forcing their extremist views on others through violence across the United States.
1: George Tiller was a doctor from Wichita, Kansas. He gained national attention as a medical director of Women's healthcare Services, which was one of only three abortion clinics in the entire country at the time which provided late termination of pregnancy. I feel like we have to start with explaining what late term abortions are and who might have them. Late term abortions generally take place between the 21st and 24th week of gestation, which is late in the second trimester. By this point in pregnancy, it's pretty unlikely that the person didn't know they were pregnant. Late-term pregnancies are medically necessary procedures, performed to save the life of the mother or due to birth defects that will make it impossible for the baby to survive outside of the womb. Dr. Teller's motto was trust women. He believed women knew their bodies better than anyone, and he trusted women to make the best decision for their own lives. His job was to provide them all the medical information and respect the mother's choice. Dr. Teller kept performing late-term abortions despite constant violent threats. Often anti-abortion protesters would blockade Dr. Teller's clinic and threaten his life. George Tiller was the son of Jack Tiller, a Wichita doctor who performed abortions during a time where they were illegal. George was serving as a surgeon in the Navy when his parents, sister, and brother-in-law were all killed in a plane crash in 1970. He returned to Kansas and took over his father's practice. I like this guy. He was ahead of his time. Trusting women
0: to know what is right for their lives and their bodies is so rarely done, even these
1: days. Yeah, he probably empowered a lot of women to speak up for themselves back then.
0: You said he took over his dad's business when he died. Was he pretty successful then?
1: Dr. Tiller was smart and resourceful. He made himself the nation's preeminent abortion practitioner, advertising widely and drawing women in Wichita from all over the country with his willingness to perform late-term abortions. He performed hundreds each year, which made him a big target. The clinic was firebombed in 1986, which caused Dr. Tiller to heavily fortify it. In 1993, anti-abortion extremist Rochelle Shelley Shannon shot Dr. Teller five times as he was sitting in his car, wounding him in both arms. She was convicted of attempted murder for Dr. Teller, as well as 10 other attacks at abortion clinics in California, Nevada, and Oregon using arson or acid. Dr. Teller survived that attack and he continued providing abortions to women who counted on him. Shelley was moved from prison to Halfway House in 2018, then released from federal custody later that year. It was an odd choice to release someone who compared abortion providers to Hitler, and said she believed she was allowed justifiable force in order to stop abortions. On May 31st of 2009, 67-year-old Dr. George Tiller stood in the foyer of his church acting as an usher in the morning service. According to a witness who was serving as an usher alongside Dr. Teller at the church that day, Scott Reuter entered the foyer, put a gun to the doctor's head, and pulled the trigger with no warning at all. At trial, Scott admitted to killing Dr. Teller and said that he did it to protect unborn babies. He was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison, with no chance of parole for 50 years. At his sentencing, he told the court that God's judgment would sweep over this land like a prairie wind. The length of time before he becomes eligible for parole was then reduced to 25 years in 2016. Now 64, Scott is an inmate at Hutchinson Correctional Facility. He has committed 98 prison disciplinary violations since entering prison to serve his sentence for Dr. Teller's murder, according to the Kansas Department of Corrections records. President Obama issued a statement after Dr. Teller's killing, saying, and I quote, However profound our differences as Americans over difficult issues such as abortion, they cannot be resolved by heinous acts of violence, end quote. He
0: survived multiple attacks on his clinic, then an attacker came to his church to murder him. That is low.
1: All these men claim to be Christian but are literally willing to kill somebody in a holy building. I am pretty sure that that's a way to get a ticket straight to hell. (laughs) You would think that would be crossing a line. It really makes me
0: think they don't have any real respect, even for their own religion. They just want to hurt people they don't agree with, which is terrifying.
1: And this leads us to our final story. This is one many have heard of, but most don't realize the motivation was so deeply connected to abortion. A violent anti-abortion extremist planted and detonated a pipe bomb at the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. The bomb killed one person, Alice Hawthorne, and injuring more than a hundred other people. Eric Rudolph later said that he bombed the Olympics to anger and embarrass the United States as a punishment for the legalization of abortion. But at that time, he escaped capture. In January of 1998, he detonated a remote-controlled nail bomb outside of a clinic that performed abortions in Birmingham, Alabama. The bomb instantly killed Robert Sanderson, an off-duty police officer working as a security guard there, and badly injuring Emily Lyons, a nurse who was left maimed and half-blind by the blast. During his time on the run, he also bombed two women's clinics in Atlanta, injuring six people, as well as a gay club in Atlanta that left five people injured.
0: Oh my god, see? This guy was just trying to kill anyone and everyone he didn't agree with.
1: I know, he didn't even have a real target. Anyone could have gotten it at that point.
0: You said he escaped capture after the Olympics bombing, but they
1: did catch him eventually, right? Well, Eric was added to the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list in May of 1998, but even with the massive manhunt, he managed to avoid authorities. He was finally captured on May 31st in 2003 after hiding in the North Carolina wilderness for five years. His undoing was brought on when a rookie cop caught him rummaging through a dumpster behind a rural grocery store in Murphy, North Carolina. As part of the plea deal in 2005, Eric pleaded guilty to the Olympic bombing as well as the Birmingham Clinic bombing and the bombings of two more clinics and the gay bar in Atlanta. He also revealed where he had stashed 250 pounds of dynamite. Through the plea deal, he avoided the death penalty, but he was given four life sentences and an additional 120 years. In remarks at his sentencing, Eric expressed remorse for the Olympic bombing, but he called violence against abortion providers as a moral duty and said that he had fought a good fight. He may have pleaded guilty, but he showed no remorse, smiling and winking at his victims during his sentencing hearing. Judge Smith compared him to a Nazi, telling him, and I quote, you misused your gifts. You allowed yourself to be overcome and overwhelmed by bigotry and intolerance.
0: I don't know what the judge thinks his gifts of blowing people up should have been used for but this guy was one twisted disgusting excuse for a human being
1: the only real part of that statement i liked was him being called a nazi (laughs) yeah we can agree with that the violence inflicted on abortion clinics and providers is not just a problem of the past abortion providers reported an increase in death threats and threats of harm rising from 92 in 2019 to 200 in 2020 There has been a 125% increase in assaults outside of clinics to both staff and patients. Internet harassment and hate mail is on the steady rise year after year. Overall, statistics show a troubling escalation in aggressive terrorism by anti-abortion supporters in recent years. Most recently, of course, was the February 10th leaked draft, revealing the Supreme Court's intention at that date to overturn Roe v. Wade altogether. The Supreme Court released a statement stating that the draft was genuine, but said, as a draft, it does not represent a decision by the court or a final position of any member on the issues of this case. Nonetheless, the publication of the draft put America on notice that the court's upcoming final decision might eliminate a long-standing constitutional right. The draft leaves fear and uncertainty about what lies ahead, specifically for people's reproductive rights and racial and economic equity. Banning abortion will most definitely increase maternal mortality rates in this country. In fact, a recent study concluded that banning abortion nationwide would lead to a 21% increase in the number of pregnancy related deaths overall. And a 33% increase among black women specifically. So the big question is why now? Aside from the fact that they have the power to, we have uncovered some potentially less obvious reasons that the Supreme Court might be pushed towards this forced birth ruling. I am already so worked up about
0: this. (laughs) I've seen the news lately, Republicans telling those of us that are pissed off basically to calm down. They like to claim you don't see pro-life supporters getting upset and threatening people, which I think we've already proven that is far from the truth.
1: Yeah, they want women and children to have these babies, but as soon as they're born, everyone is on their own. They no longer give a damn about the mother of the baby they so desperately needed to protect in the first place.
0: Exactly. Okay, let's get into these possible reasons behind why they might be doing this now, other than because they want to keep all power for
1: rich white men only. Okay, first of all, let's not pretend that this is about the lives of fetuses. The same Republicans screaming about abortion being murder and protecting all of these unborn lives at any cost are the same appearing and supporting Fox News. They are arguing that senior citizens in the autoimmune compromise should take a chance on their survival for the sake of the economy during the COVID-19 pandemic. The vast majority of Republicans are on record with the opinion that the rate of COVID deaths was acceptable and the mass loss of lives is not a good enough reason to risk damaging the economy or to mandate masks. So now that we've established that this isn't about saving lives, let's get into what it might actually be about. One possible reason for the government to want forced birth is something called replacement level fertility which is the average number of children born per woman which is needed for the population to replace one generation after the next. The replacement rate is currently an average of 2.1 children per woman in order to exactly replace the generations in America currently dying off. The problem the government is facing is there was a significant drop in births per woman between 1960 and 1978, right around the time of the Roe v. Wade ruling. Americans went from an average of 3.5 births per woman to 1.77 and has held steady since, with our current rate of 1.78 in the US. If the average number of births don't increase rapidly as the boomer generation declines, the population will decrease, meaning less taxes and less workers to fill low-wage jobs. It isn't hard to see the connection between safe legal abortion access and a drop in population. Instead of working to improve our country and the circumstances of people in it, which would provide resources and a desire for bigger families, the shortcut is simply to force women to give birth. Already sold.
0: Our government will do anything for money. That is a really fascinating point. Older generations talk a lot about how millennials aren't having enough kids or starting families early enough like past generations did. Who cares about the fact that there's already an overpopulation issue or that everything is so expensive people are struggling to care just for themselves? The government is focused on how to keep raking in taxes without resorting to taxing the rich.
1: I mean, inflation is increasing year after year. Just living and trying to take care of yourself is hard enough. Now throw a child into it that you need to take care of. It makes it nearly impossible if you weren't mentally or financially prepared to do so.
0: Don't even get me started on inflation, man.
1: (laughs) Okay, what's the other idea? The other less obvious possible cause for the removal of women's rights to make their own life choices is a shortage in infants up for adoption. Olga Kassan at The Atlantic poses an excellent question. At a glance, America's shortage of adoptable babies may seem like a problem, but is the adoption meant to provide babies for families or families for babies? As we saw in our last case with the Hart family, children in the foster and adoption system are often sent off to live through traumatic childhoods, abused by families who claim to want them. The point of adoption should be finding good families for kids that have no other family to care for them, not forcing women to give birth to babies they don't want or can't take care of in order to fill those orders for infertile couples. Of the nearly 4 million American children who are born each year, only 18,000 of them are voluntarily given up for adoption. Some estimates suggest that dozens of couples are now waiting to adopt each available baby. Since the mid-1970s, when large numbers of unmarried women place their children for adoption, some willingly but many unwillingly, the percentage of unmarried women who give up their infants has declined from nearly 9% to less than 1%. There are plenty of children who aren't babies who need families, of course, and more than 100,000 children are available for adoption from foster care. But adoptive parents tend to prefer children who are as young as possible. Why does this matter? Because despite what they want you to believe, adoption is not a charitable industry. Look,
0: I have struggled with infertility for the last 10 years, and we aren't saying that it's a bad thing to adopt. But Sham is right. The adoption industry is more interested in having enough babies to sell to desperate parents than about having less unwanted children in the world. Not having enough babies being put up for adoption sounds like a good thing to me.
1: Right. That. And if you're a child of color, you're less likely to be adopted and put straight into the foster care system. And based off last week's story, it proves that that's not the best place for any child to be.
0: Conjurers, if you haven't listened to last week's story, go listen right after this. Foster care and adoption is so often not the beautiful family story you see on the brochures. Okay. Okay. I get that the adoption industry is looking at the so-called baby shortage in a really shitty way, but what's the real problem? Money is the problem,
1: as it is so often in this country. A 2021 review shows that prospective parents were charged more than $25,000 in fees, not including legal costs for finalizing adoption, birth mother expenses, and other add-ons. The full bin can balloon to more than double that. Adam Pertman, author of Adoption Nation and president of the National Center of Adoption and Permanency, says, Anytime you put dollar signs and human beings in the same sentence, you have a recipe for disaster. There is also no federal regulation of the industry at all. Laws governing everything from allowable financial support to how birth parents give their consent to an adoption are made at the state level and vary widely state to state. The point is, when your job is legally trafficking babies, women having rights over their own bodies is bad for business. America likes to pretend our justice system operates without capitalist influences, but of course that isn't true. Money makes the laws, and the multi-million dollar adoption industry has lobbyists like any other industry. It is in their financial interest to have as many women giving birth as possible, and more specifically, women who didn't want to get pregnant. Is our Supreme Court being bought by the adoption industry? Who knows? But it's suspicious that the rights we currently have to make our own choices on when and how many children we have is costing companies and the government money.
0: It always comes back to money, doesn't it? The amount of money the adoption agency makes is obscene when you realize their product is human beings.
1: America seems to only be getting worse with money. And I hope moving forward, the next generation pushes for immediate change.
0: It's starting now with us. But it won't end with our generation. The rhetoric of anti-abortionists is sweeping the nation and threatening the lives and freedom of women all across America. Even though the majority of U.S. adults say abortion should be legal in all or most cases, the largely Christian extremists are determined to force their beliefs on everyone else, no matter the cost. The added incentive of money to be made by forcing women to give birth is uniting our government and these right wing terrorists. If you're in the United States, please consider doing whatever you can to advocate for safe and legal abortions.
1: If you live in one of the many states that plan to ban abortion as soon as the Roe v. Wade is overturned, please look up the Bridget Alliance. The Bridget Alliance arranges and funds confidential, personalized travel support to those seeking abortion care in increasingly hostile environments. In partnership with a network of funds and providers, they are closing the gap between the right to an abortion and the ability to access one. If you or someone you know needs support or to donate to the cause, go to BridgetAlliance.org. To view images,
0: information, and sources from this case, visit our website at CrimeAndConjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for the question of the week. If you haven't seen it yet, you can also find us at Crime and Conjure Podcast on TikTok.
1: Steph, what's our conjure tip of the week?
0: Today I wanna talk about bloodstone, also known as the warrior stone. This deep green stone is so well known for its ability to bring courage and resilience that it was often carried onto the battlefield alongside shields and swords. It's a stone of courage, facing realities and finding the strength to persevere no matter what. Get one for yourself and every woman you know. This fight may be long, but we will persevere.
1: I love this and I'll have to pick up a few for the women in my life, especially in this current day and age. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, time, stay stay vigilant, vigilant conjurers. conjurers.